Welcome to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that testify of Christ's teachings, His life, ministry, and mission, and His sacred atonement. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you, President Samuelson. Carrie and Michelle, that, uh, that song was beautiful. I uh, mentioned to my wife before we started that I had heard you practicing and that uh, Carrie had an, an amazing voice, and I mentioned that you would be singing Nearer My God to Thee, and she said, wasn't that the last song they played on the Titanic before it sank? <clears throat> <laughs> and I think that's true. I'm grateful to Advancement Vice President Worthen for the opportunity to speak today. These weekly devotionals and forums have been a big part of my BYU experience. I attended them when I was a student, and my wife and I still attend them, um, almost every one, uh, with our children who are students here. I'm also grateful to my family and friends and colleagues who have taken the time to uh, be with us today. Today is my father's birthday. He's 87 years old. And he and my mother are watching this devotional in Wisconsin. And if the volume on the television sets all the way up, they're listening to it, too. (laughs) I hope you'll indulge me if I take a minute to greet my parents in our native tongue. Yeah, hey there, Dad. (laughs) How's she going? Happy birthday, and uh, hey, Mom. (laughs) My father's name is Gordon Smith, and my mother told me recently, and she reminds me often, that he never wanted a son named Gordon. But he agreed to give me his his first name as my middle name. And this is the story about why I took that name upon myself and why I've come to believe that the names that we call each other are important. To understand why I took my father's name as my own, you need to know a little bit about my relationship with my father. My father and several generations before him were dairy farmers in Wisconsin, but in the wake of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, only 17 years old at the time, my father joined the Navy and was assigned to serve in the South Pacific. He made a career of the military, and I was born in a naval hospital in Bremerton, Washington. Shortly after my birth, he was transferred to San Diego, California, where he taught teletype repair for five years. Following his retirement, our family returned to his childhood home of Wisconsin, and that's where I grew up. My earliest memories involve feeding and caring for cows, pigs, and chickens on our small farm though I was temperamentally not well-suited to farming. My uneasy relationship with farming became apparent to our whole family when um, our pigs disappeared. Our pigs were slurp and burp. And one day they were just gone. And I asked around, uh, where did slurp and burp go? And nobody else seemed troubled by their disappearance. They just said that somebody had come and, and taken them away. A few weeks later, over a dinner featuring pork chops, (laughs) 
My older sister, who introduced so much of life to me, said, <laughs> pointing at my plate, remember slurp and burp? <laughs> Lessons about the circle of life were plentiful on that small farm. Uh, I saw my father assist in the birthing of a calf, and we drank milk from the calf's mother. I was playing basketball in the yard one day, and a rabid raccoon came walking up to me, and my dad shot the raccoon. <laughs> At first, I was worried I'd been in trouble, and then I thought he had just missed, but... <clears throat> We learned by observation that chickens do indeed come from eggs, and we also learned by observation what it means to run around like a chicken with your head cut off. <laughs> Despite our humble and remote circumstances, I managed to cultivate big dreams on that farm in no small part because of my dad. During his last year of service in the Navy, he traveled the world and sent us souvenirs from Europe, Asia, Africa, he was gone for a year, and I remember when he returned, I didn't know what he looked like because he was, I was only four years old when he left, and I was five when he returned. But I treasured those souvenirs that he sent back, and I spent many hours in my room in Wisconsin looking at photos of Rome or pounding on a drum from Africa or playing with toys from the Philippines, imagining what it would be like to visit those faraway lands. Some of my most treasured memories from childhood involve sitting in the living room or in the backyard listening to my father tell stories about his childhood or about his adventures in the Navy. Like Aesop's fables, these stories almost always came with some moral that we were supposed to take from them. And my son Drew and I were just uh, recently in Wisconsin for a family reunion, and we again heard the stories about the importance of hard work, competence, and integrity. He also taught me more through his reaction to war than through his words to despise war. Although he could never speak of combat, and he still can't to this day. One Navy story inevitably connected to another, and they often led him to memories that he would rather suppress. We could discern when he had reached this point because he'd swallow hard, his eyes would well up with tears, and he'd look off into the distance. My mother recently observed, they don't give purple hearts for those wounds. Another significant lesson, never stated explicitly, but reinforced repeatedly through his stories, was that one person could change the world. Now, as far as I know, my dad never changed the course of the war, through his naval service, but his story showed me why the Navy always valued one more good man. During the war, he was only an enlisted radioman, but I was convinced as a young boy that aside from Admiral Nimitz, my father was the most important person in the Pacific Fleet. To me, he was and he remains a great man. As President Joseph F. Smith said a 100 years ago, those things which we call extraordinary, remarkable, or unusual may make history, but they do not make real life. After all, to do those things which God ordained to be the common lot of all mankind is the truest greatness. To be a successful father or a successful mother is greater than to be a successful general 
or a successful statesman. From my own experience, I knew that my dad could fix anything, whether the problem was mechanical, electrical, or personal. He always seemed to have an answer. And like many young boys, I looked up to my dad. He was one of my heroes. During those growing up years in Osseo, everyone called me by my first name, Doug. Strangely, my group of friends went through a phase in which we decided to call each other by our father's names. Um, some of those names stuck, Omer Gunnam, Seymour Larson, but for some reason, Gordon Smith just didn't seem like a good fit for me. I was largely content with my name, um, except when my high school English teacher decided to call me Dougie. No one in that day was asking me to teach them how to Dougie. <laughs> I was still Doug Smith when I arrived at BYU in August of 1980. I was not a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but my first class in college was Book of Mormon, was Religion 121, Book of Mormon. My best friend in high school, who had convinced me to attend BYU with him, told me I shouldn't worry about this class. The Book of Mormon was just a history of South America, and that was all I knew about the course. <clears throat> so I showed up on the first day, and the professor introduced the course by saying we'd be covering the first half of the Book of Mormon, and he started to talk about the events that we would encounter. I wasn't worried until the guy next to me raised his hand and said, will we be discussing the Sons of Mosiah in this course? I did a double take. I thought, how does he know anything about what's in this book? And I thought, well, the professor will provide us some context for the people who didn't read ahead. <laughs> <clears throat> but he just answered the student as if it was a completely natural question. And then another student raised his hand and said, how about Samuel the Lamanite? That guy's cool. And everybody laughed, and I completely missed the joke. <laughs> then another person said something, and by this point in the class, I was starting to panic, and I wasn't in the habit of praying at the time. I didn't really pray much at all, but I just decided that since I was at BYU, I'd bow my head and say a little prayer, please, God, make them stop. Well, it did eventually stop, and at the end of the class, I approached the teacher, and I asked, did you post an assignment for the first class? And he said, no, why do you ask? And I said, well, it just seems like everybody's read ahead. Uh, and he looked me up and down, and he said, you aren't a member, are you? I thought about that for a second, and I thought, a member of what? <laughs> So we had a nice long talk about uh, the class, and I read the Book of Mormon in my first year at BYU. The transition from that first day of college to my baptism in the fall semester of my sophomore year did not require a dramatic change in my lifestyle, but my worldview was completely upended. Embracing the gospel impelled me to look outward in a way that I never had before, to place others before myself. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. I decided to serve a mission 
and one year after my baptism, I was called to serve in Vienna, Austria. I became Elder Smith. Over the past few weeks, I've reread my missionary journals. I don't know if you, any of you have done that, but that is a horrifying experience. <laughs> I'm not a great journal writer, but I was impressed by the extended effort, by the effort I expended in trying to create a new identity for myself as Elder Smith. I wanted to become a powerful missionary. I knew that Austria was not a high baptizing mission, but I thought England wasn't a high baptizing mission before Wilford Woodruff got there either. <laughs> Unfortunately, my motives were entirely self-interested. I felt like I had a debt to pay, and I wanted to repay it. Unfortunately, I hadn't internalized the lesson of King Benjamin that even if we serve God with our whole souls, we remain unprofitable servants. I worked hard in Austria, and I was frustrated at my inability to reduce my debt. Every sacrifice that I made, every extra effort that I made, was repaid many times over. And early in my mission, I wrote about this frustration in my journal. I have been so blessed by the Lord, and I wanted to go on a mission in part to show Him how much I loved Him. To think of my mission as just something else by which I can make myself better is offensive to me. It implies that the biggest attempt I've made in my life to be selfless has turned into the most selfless endeavor that I have ever undertaken. By the end of my mission, I had come to terms with God over my indebtedness, and I had learned that the most valuable lesson of my mission was to love the people. As King Benjamin said, when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. In my last week in Austria, I wrote the following entry in my journal while riding on a train from Vienna to Linz. Austria is a beautiful land dotted with small villages. One of the most common sights from the train is the steeple of a Catholic church against the background of rolling green hills. We are sitting with a lady from Vienna who is dressed in a traditional Austrian hat, blouse, and skirt. Tradition prevents most Austrians from hearing our message, and yet, after being rejected by thousands of people, I have learned to love these people with a love that I have felt for no others. Somehow I pray for them, cry for them, and hope for them as I do my own family. You can perceive in these journal entries the journey taken by many young people, that transition as we go from inward-looking, self-conscious, self-centered teenagers to outward-looking, empathetic adults. When I returned to Osseo after my mission, I shed the title of Elder Smith, and like many returned missionaries, including my son Drew, who just came home from Ukraine, I went through that awkward phase of adjusting to being called by my first name. In my case, however, my pre-mission name evoked thoughts about a confused young boy who arrived at BYU three years before. Doug just didn't seem to fit anymore. And I didn't, but I didn't do anything about it until I met a young woman at BYU in the following year who was changing her name. She just decided one day to ask people to call her by, their middle, by her middle name, and they did. I thought, is that really all there is to it? You just ask people to call you, call me whatever, and they do it. And this was a revelation to me. I didn't have to be Doug Smith anymore. I could be anything I wanted. After much contemplation, 
I decided that using my middle name would not only be the simplest change, after all, I wouldn't have to make a legal change to my name, but it would also honor my father. What I did not fully comprehend was how that change would affect me. Changing my name was a tremendous hassle. Sue was supportive, and I didn't ask our families to change, uh, to, to uh, call me Gordon. So when we visit relatives, I'm still Doug. The real challenge was among my friends. In my first accounting class of the fall semester, legendary accounting professor Jay Smith called on me by my first name and asked, I said, would you mind calling me Gordon? Well, by that time, I was well into my major, and both he and my classmates looked at me quizzically and wondering, what's the punchline? But I didn't have a punchline. Um, I changed my name to Gordon. In another class, many people that knew, so many people knew me by the name Doug that they simply wouldn't allow me to change. They insisted over my protest that I was joking. My coworkers and supervisors in the Reading and Writing Center split about evenly between those who made the adjustment and those who couldn't, and that just caused confusion. It was hard on people. Several times during the first few months, I considered abandoning my project. In conversation, I stumbled over my new name. More than once, I failed to acknowledge people who called me Gordon. And I experimented with new signatures. I changed my driver's license. I learned to fill out forms that blanks, had blanks for first name, middle initial, last name. At the same time, I was surprised to discover that when people called me Gordon, it felt different than being called Doug. In the beginning, each reference to Gordon caused me to think about my father. I was clothing myself in his name, and I felt obliged to wear it honorably. I didn't want to become my father, but I wanted to become a person who, who would make him proud. Over time, I came to associate the name Gordon with my Mormon identity and the name Doug with my pre-Mormon life. I have sometimes thought of this experience of changing my name in relation to my baptism, an ordinance in which I took upon myself the name of Jesus Christ. In both instances, the name was given to me by another, but I was asked to embrace the name as my own. Now, each week in taking the sacrament, I reaffirm my willingness to take upon myself the name of Jesus Christ. What is the significance of this representation? When I took upon myself the name of my father, I was not using his name as a description of my character. I was not saying, I am my father. Rather, I was using his name to honor him and to inspire myself to develop attributes like him. Similarly, taking upon ourselves the name of Christ is not recognition of an achievement, but rather a nudge toward improved behavior. King Benjamin gave his people the name of Christ only after the Spirit had changed their hearts, but he gave them the name not because they had reached some threshold, not because they had no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Rather, he gave them the name so that they could remember that moment and remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works." When faithful people take upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ, they assume a name that is imbued with meaning. President Spencer W. Kimball once said, 
the name of Jesus Christ and what it represents has been plowed deep into the history of the world, never to be uprooted. This feature of the name is useful in transmitting large amounts of information. Rather than saying that we should have faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence, or any of the other myriad attributes that we associate with Jesus Christ, we can say more simply that we take upon ourselves the name of Christ. Moreover, because we have stories about his life, the name of Christ has a richness and texture that is impossible to convey merely by listing the attributes of his character. I have spoken about the positive power of naming, but naming also has a dark side. Just as naming can inspire and direct, it can discourage or obstruct. This is a phenomenon that we all recognize as name-calling or labeling. The line between labeling for the purpose of providing information and labeling for the purpose of marginalizing others can be subtle, but I'll strive to illustrate a few guiding principles from my experiences as a law professor. Each year, BYU Law School attracts some of the brightest law students in the country, and I want to do a special shout out to the law students who are here or watching on TV. I'm grateful that you have taken time from your busy schedules. I've taught in six law schools in the United States and several programs abroad, and I know from law students. When I came to BYU five years ago, some of my colleagues at other law schools wondered aloud whether law could be taught effectively at a school whose students share so many religious values. While an outsider might imagine legal education at BYU Law as a form of indoctrination, my experience has been quite the contrary. The fairly high degree of religious homogeneity we experience here has actually enabled or encouraged discussions in class that are more vigorous than those typically seen at other law schools. While students at other law schools often pass off their disagreements on the simplistic ground that they belong to different value groups, no point in thinking too hard about the views of someone so misguided, students at BYU often feel compelled to examine the implications of their assumed shared beliefs. This is real learning, not indoctrination. For example, in my contracts class, Students express a range of views about the so social implications of contracting. Some students enter the class with a bias in favor of market transactions, believing that economic efficiency and respect for the liberty of individuals should compel courts to enforce almost all contracts, regardless of the consequences. Students who hold this view sometimes invoke the gospel principle of agency, arguing that we all benefit if people are encouraged to take responsibility for their own risk. Other students enter the course with a bias in favor of social control, believing that respect for the dignity of individuals should compel courts to protect the weakest members of our society. The students who hold this view sometimes appeal to the gospel principle of charity, arguing that legal rules should ensure that contracts are fair and that people with more wealth, talent, or bargaining skill should not be allowed to use those advantages to prey upon the weak. Former Yale law professor Arthur Leff recognized both of these impulses and described in poetic prose why we cannot have our cake and eat it too. In effect, we want to have a world so arranged that everyone will be motivated to get as good a deal as possible for himself by being as informed and as efficient as he can be but that no one will, have, will get a bad deal in the process. 
but the payoff from the former necessitates, indeed entails the latter. Hence, doing both is not a technical problem, but a cultural one. We cannot have perfect freedom and perfect fairness at once. What we have instead are legal devices that allow us inconsistently and with only symbolic impact an occasional evasive bow in the direction of our incoherent heart's desires. Sometimes in the course of our class discussions, the students will square off in these two camps, but I strive to be sensitive about the formation of viewpoint cliques in the classroom. If students caricature their classmates, if they attempt to marginalize someone in the class as an other, then we talk, uh, then learning suffers, and we have to talk about the importance of empathy in learning law. We truly understand our own views only when we understand the views of those who disagree with us. In seeking that understanding of those who disagree with us, my own experience has been that my views evolve, and I find this not only acceptable, but praiseworthy. In the April 2012 General Conference, President Dieter Uchtdorf reminded us to stop judging others and replace judgmental thoughts with feelings and feelings with a heart full of love for God and his children. Name-calling and labeling are forms of judgment, and the problem with judgment is its finality. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we should encourage people to change and improve. If we believe that others have taken a wrong turn, one of the greatest acts of charity that we can perform is to give them room to repent. As observed by President Uchtdorf, we must recognize that we are all imperfect, that we are all beggars before God. Haven't we all, at one time or another, meekly approached the mercy seat and pleaded for grace? Haven't we wished, with all the energy of our souls, for mercy to be forgiven for the mistakes we have made and the sins we have committed? Because we all depend on the mercy of God, how can we deny others any measure of the grace we so desperately desire for ourselves? My beloved brothers and sisters, should we not forgive as we wish to be forgiven? Thus, if we are to be like Jesus Christ, if we have truly taken upon ourselves his name, we should avoid name-calling and labeling and stand ever ready to receive those who have strayed. My own experience has been that we, when we exercise influence, by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, we not only bless the lives of others, but we elevate ourselves. I pray that we may all come closer to that ideal in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, love and marriage, and the prophet Joseph Smith. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.